Hello and welcome to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International. My name is Evelyn McCleverty and today we're talking to... It's been miraculous. That's Justice Shireen Fisher. She's one of the original members of the IAWJ, the International Association of Women Judges. And I just, you know, paid my dues. And it was a good idea. Shireen has been involved in a campaign by the IAWJ that's managed to help female Afghan judges and their families leave Afghanistan after the Taliban returned to power in 2021. You know, when faced with 270 of your members about to be killed and they're asking for your help, you must respond. Judge Fisher is a judge of the residual special court for Sierra Leone. Before that, she served as a judge on the war crimes chamber of the court of Bosnia and Herzegovina. She's lectured in international law and has been involved in international judicial education and institution building since 1993. And had you received any resistance? Lots. Yeah. Was that difficult? (laughs) Well, it wasn't unexpected. (laughs) Before we launch into Judge Fisher's interview, a quick recap on what this podcast is about. I'm your host. I'm a journalist specialising in justice and climate issues. And the idea behind Horsehair Wigs, which is generously funded by Irish Aid, is that every month we bring you a new interview where we talk to a guest about their personal narratives and professional experiences surrounding justice, the rule of law and access to justice. For now, though, thanks for listening. And here, Judge Shireen Fisher, who started her interview by explaining to me how she became involved in helping her Afghan colleagues flee their home country. Well, uh, I'm a member of the International Association of Women Judges. When the organization began uh, back in 1989, I was one of the original members of the organization, and we hold biennial meetings. And in 2004, after Afghanistan fell, we invited an Afghan judge who had previously been a judge in Afghanistan to join us at one of these meetings. And she related to us uh, the efforts that were being made to rebuild the judiciary and as part of those efforts to bring in women judges, which had, of course, been banned during the Taliban period. And so the organization became very involved in training and encouraging women in Afghanistan to become judges. We did a lot of judicial exchanges with Afghanistan. We did, uh, we partnered in projects in Afghanistan. And by 2021, all 270 women judges in Afghanistan were members of the IAWJ. At the biennial meeting in February of 2021, there were two speakers, two women judges from Afghanistan who spoke, and they related that things were going very badly for women judges there, that two of the women judges had already been assassinated, that there were assassination attempts and death threats against practically all of the women judges, that with the pullout of the Western troops, they had a great fear that the Taliban would take over, that the Taliban had already made it clear that death warrants would be issued for women judges because they had committed the sin of sitting in judgment against men. We were also aware that a women's high school had been bombed and that there had been many fatalities and that things were were going badly and that things were bound to get worse. 
So a resolution was passed uh, at the biennial meeting uh, calling on the government of Afghanistan and the international community to protect the women judges of Afghanistan. At the same time, the subgroup of the IAWJ, of which I am a member, uh, it's a subgroup of international judges, we were challenged to write to influencers in international criminal law, prosecutors, uh, prior judges, to do whatever they could and, and please come out publicly and explain that gender discrimination is a crime under the ICC statute. The rule of law does not tolerate the kind of treatment of women, particularly of women judges. And so we, within what were sort of our normal parameters of how judges operate, we attempted to use the rule of law to put a spotlight on the fact that there was impending criminal activity and to perhaps deter some of that by making it clear to the Taliban and whoever else in Afghanistan might be uh, contemplating these kinds of crimes that the world was watching. Well, we failed miserably at that. We got responses from the various people to whom we had written, but most of them were, well, you know, it's not going to be that bad. Um, the Afghan government will probably be able to hold, and the Taliban is a kinder, gentler Taliban. Uh, when we ran that by our Afghan colleagues, they said that that's just not the case. In any event, since that was failing, we polled all 270 of the judges and said, do you want to leave? Is there anything we can do to help you? And they said, we do not want to leave. We want to stay. We want to maintain the rule of law. You know, we've fought very hard to get where we are, to get justice for women. And if we leave, we will be abandoning the cause of the rule of law and the women that we are representing. Is this before the Taliban took control of yes. Kabul? So you were preempting what was going to happen? Yes, yes. So this is between February 2021 and August 15th. August 15th, Kabul fell, the country fell, the Taliban took over. It was not a kinder, gentler Taliban. We polled our judges after August 15th, and 250 of the 270 at that point said, get us out of here. This group, which is a professional support group consisting of 6,000 women judges around the world, decided, okay, our colleagues say they need to get out of there or they're going to be killed, so we have to do something. So the first thing, of course, we did is go to our governments and say, can you prioritize these women because there's already a death warrant against them? Plus, the, the first thing the Taliban did is they opened all the prisons so that all of the men that had been condemned by these women were swearing revenge. Mm -hmm. So it was exceedingly unsafe place. Mm -hmm. And the government said, no, we have other priorities ahead of these. All viable people who needed to get out of Afghanistan, you know, people who have worked with the directly with our governments and our embassies. But, you know, they're on the list, but they're certainly nowhere near the top. So having looked at all of the alternatives, the president of the IAWJ, a woman by the name of uh, Susan Glazebrook, who is from New Zealand, uh, and much to her credit, said, well, if the governments aren't going to do it, we're going to have to turn to civil society, and we're going to have to do it. 
And so between seven and 11 judges in the IAWJ, led by the president, formed an extraction committee. And they went to uh, partner with other NGOs, including the IBA and other non-legal NGOs, uh, and said, okay, how do we get these people out? Now, most of the judges who are on this extraction committee, they're older judges. And this was totally beyond anybody's skill set. I was just about to ask you that. So this is kind of the first time that something like this has ever been attempted by the IAWJ oh, in absolutely. terms of mobilization a, and, and no, 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 practicalities. No, 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 no. That isn't what we are all about. We're, we're a, a professional support group. <laughs> but, you know, when faced with 270 of your members about to be killed and they're asking for your help, you must respond. And the first thing they did was put together a a communication network, a secure network, so that all of the judges were accessible. Then they connected the judges with various judges around the world who were in countries where it was hoped that visas could be obtained. Because the first effort was to try to get them out through conventional means through the airports, having obtained visas. So I was contacted because they knew I was in Ireland. Uh, The other IAWJ judge in Ireland, in the international group, is Judge Teresa Doherty, who lives in the North. So Tracy and I were contacted, seeing what we could do to get visas. And between us, we made the appeal. Uh, We were joined by the IBA, who were the International Bar Association. In the International Bar Association. We originally were asked by the extraction committee if we could get three visas. Then we were asked if we could do five, and we said, okay, we'll try for five. Uh, and when we say five judges, the policy of the IAWJ was to take the judge and anybody that was living within her household, because all of those people were in equal danger. And we thought, oh, you know, if we got three, we'd be lucky. And Evelyn Byrne from the IRPP, the Refugee Protection Program was absolutely wonderful. And uh, she gave us the good news on September 29th that 10 of the judges would be getting visas as would their immediate family. That was 43 people which was unbelievably generous of Ireland because it was a great many more than most other countries. And so simultaneous with that effort, the Irish legal community came together, the barristers, the law society, the solicitors, and the judges and the IRLI to form the Afghan Justice Appeal and agreed that if we got those visas, that they would be a professional community support group for those 43 people. Uh, And then it was just a question of the extraction team getting them out of uh, (laughs) Afghanistan, which proved very, very difficult. Uh, So this was about a month over a month after the Taliban had taken control yes. of the country. In the meantime, the IAWJ had been sponsored. At this point in the interview, Judge Fisher and I talked a little about how her Afghan colleagues actually made it out of the country. It's a great story and amazing work by the IAWJ, but because of security concerns, and that needs to be central in this, we've decided not to include the details here. 
But nonetheless, wonderful work by a group of international judges. So like a huge, a huge feat really by yes. by you and your colleagues. Well, not me. I didn't well, do the extraction. I mean, you may not have been part of the extraction, but as you said, very communicative in all of this and part of the receiving team. I was part of the worrying team. <laughs> part of the worrying team for your colleagues who probably didn't have the headspace to even think about worrying. But but a huge, a huge challenge for you all. It's been miraculous. Can I ask you about the legal landscape now in the country and particularly maybe the male members of the judiciary who are who are left within the country? Do you know anything about them? I know that many are in jeopardy and will need help and do need help and that there are organizations that have focused on them but have not done an extraction. And I would strongly urge those organizations to get it together. And we're, we're happy, I'm sure, to share our experiences. Mm, because I, I get the impression that the mobilization by the IAWJ was quite special and certainly to have helped so many female Afghan judges. I mean, I don't know any other organization that managed to extract members of their of their community, actually, in, in this to the same extent. But I imagine now that equally there are male members of the judiciary who are being targeted. Oh, absolutely. And they absolutely need an organization to help them get out of Afghanistan. I mean, uh, the the women judges uh, could name several of their colleagues who were great supporters of gender justice, who are in serious trouble and that need to be removed. Uh, I expect they are in safe houses, but not because of the help of any particular organization. And yes, it would be essential to try to get those folks out as well. You mentioned that you had dealings with your Afghan counterparts prior to this, with the trainings, with the IAWJ involvement. What are your impressions of what has happened to the country now? And can you see a way forward? I just know that the situation right now is very dire for our membership and many others, and women and girls particularly. Can we rewind a little? You're from the US and you've worked as a judge both at national and international level. How and why did you decide to pursue a career in law and specifically as a judge? I come from a family of lawyers and judges. And uh, although it wasn't a popular thing for a woman to do, uh, I was always encouraged to do it. Uh, I went to court with my grandfather uh, as I was growing up in the same town where our family had lived for 300 years. People would come up to me after my grandfather's death, friends, parents, and say, you know, how helpful he had been and how, you know, he had made such a difference in their lives. And uh, my great uncle was a judge and I, I was similarly impressed with what they were able to do for people. And it wasn't until I got to university that I realized that actually lawyers were quite disliked. <laughs> it came as a shock to me. <laughs> um, having not read enough of my Charles Dickens, I suppose, and kill the lawyers first. So uh, when I formed my career goal to become a lawyer and ultimately a judge, because I always thought that that would be a nice job to have, I was under the impression that this was a beneficent group <laughs> whose job really was to help people. And I still believe that that's the primary job of lawyers. And the primary job of judges is to make sure that those people who go through the justice system are treated fairly and believe that they have been heard. 
My early impressions, I don't think were wrong, but uh, having lived through Watergate and other examples of lawyering that does not meet that standard, I can understand the public's view. Hmm. But back then you were definitely impressed by proceedings in court. And I was. And my grandfather's office was in his house, something that I duplicated then many years later when I opened a law firm in Vermont. So when you decided that you wanted to pursue a career in law, you went on to specialize in, in poverty law. Why poverty law? And how did this shape your interest in international human rights law? Well, poverty law is law that is giving a voice to people who generally are not heard within the legal system, essentially poor people, but also gender and racial minorities. It is human rights law uh, on the domestic level. And so a lot of interesting things were going on. It, it was just a very exciting time to be in the law, uh, especially if you wanted to be on the front lines. Now, a lot of people don't like that, but that's kind of what I wanted to do. So, mm. so you did that. I did. I actually gave a big law firm a chance for two years and decided that was not for me and um, went from being billed at an exorbitant rate per hour uh, to getting a a stipend as a VISTA attorney, uh, which entitled me to get food stamps. Mm -hmm. But my clients, even though I was entitled to get food stamps, were getting the same legal representation as the clients of the large law firms were for the exorbitant rate an hour. And I was feeling a whole lot better about the whole thing. So it was really representing those who would have been traditionally marginalized and the formation of rights for those people as well and defending them in court. So obviously, as you said, yeah, hugely, hugely exciting. You were the second woman to be appointed to the Vermont bench in the 1980s. How did that feel actually, you know, being at that point where you'd achieved it? Um, well, of course, everybody that when they first go on the bench, it's a little bit scary. But the uh, advice that was given to me by a male colleague was, don't let them know you don't know what you're doing. It'll only make them nervous. And had you received any resistance? Lots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was that difficult? Um, well, it wasn't unexpected. Uh, starting in, in high school, sorry, you know, I, I was not part of the first wave of, of women lawyers, which was helpful. Um, but I was close enough to it that there, there was a great deal of resistance to it. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we angst over things like, can we ever wear a pantsuit to court? You know, that sort of thing. I was the first woman attorney to practice in one county of our state, which was up in the corner near the Canadian border. And everybody said, oh, well, you know, jurors aren't going to accept her. She's going to lose all her cases. And that wasn't true at all, as it turned out. Yes, because I'm very curious as to how you ended up being a judge on the Vermont bench to living in Ireland and your alignment and association with the International Association of Women Judges. How did all of that come about? Well, my alignment with the IAWJ came about because I was obviously after getting me on the bench or having something to do with getting me on the bench, I joined the NAWJ. And in 1989 at one of our conferences, well, several women at two in the morning in the hospitality suite were kicking around ideas of what to do. And a couple of the women had brought colleagues from other countries to come to the meeting. They said, well, you know, why don't we make this an international organization? And we said, yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> it's like, why don't we extract 250 Afghan judges? Yeah, sure, why not? 
So you were one of the the founding members. Uh, well, I was there for it. Uh, mm. Yes, yeah. I'm the not, original members. Yeah, mm. yeah. And uh, there is a particular judge who actually did all the work for it, and I just, you know, paid my dues. And it was a good idea. Mm. And from Vermont to Ireland. Oh, from Vermont to Ireland. Well, both my husband and I have roots in Ireland in terms of our ancestry. And one of our two daughters was uh, very taken with Irish culture, and she did Irish dancing, and she into Irish traditional music. So she announced to us that she wanted to go to university in Ireland. And she fell in love with Maynooth and uh, was accepted in 1998. And uh, in 2000, our other daughter says, well, I want to go to school in London. <laughs> so in the course of Doing the the route in London, my husband was offered uh, a position in a master's program. He's a composer, and he's also a, a sound engineer in theatrical sound design. He thought that sounded like it would be really interesting. And so at that point, I was looking at all three of my family members heading off to Europe to do wonderful academic exercises. So I said, well, okay. All right. And, and plus, at that time, we had two horses and several dogs and cats and other things. And I said, I'm not staying home, <laughs> taking care of the wild life, <laughs> the livestock. Um, so I, I said, OK, I'm going to take a year and I'm going to apply for an LLM in human rights, which mm -hmm. international human rights, which would seem to be a, mm -hmm. uh, consistent with your background. Yes. Yeah. And so I did, and then we never came back. One thing led to another once we, we were in London, and between 2000 and 2015, in addition to doing my, my master's and my PhD in international law, I also served on two different uh, international courts. Since what I did, I could do living in Ireland as easily as living in London, uh, we decided we would move over to Ireland and it's been lovely and we've been very happy that we've done that. You're listening to Horsehair Wigs with me, Evelyn McClafferty. Today I'm talking to Justice Shireen Fisher. We'll be back shortly. mentioned the two international courts that you worked on. One of those was the Court of Bosnia and Herzegovina, the newly formed court in the country following the war there, which ended in 1995. You were in Bosnia from 2005 to 2008, so 10 years after the end of the conflict. What did you do there? The, uh, the establishment of the Court of Bosnia and Herzegovina occurred in 2002, but in 2005, the war crimes chamber of the court of Bosnia and Herzegovina began, uh, and it was an internationalized national court. The court was a national court with national law and national judges, but that it also had sitting with the national judges, international judges. And we would sit with the Bosnian judges and hear uh, war crime cases, uh, atrocity crimes from the war in the former Yugoslavia. Mm. Can you talk about some of the crimes that you were hearing in court? We had 
every conceivable kind of atrocity case. Generally, the cases involve multiple defendants, although not all did. They generally involve multiple violations of the law. And we're talking about gender crimes, sexual slavery, rape. We're talking about torture. And the largest case I sat on was a Srebrenica case, uh, which involved the killing of a thousand men and boys in the Kravitza warehouse. And the charge there was against 11 defendants, and the charge was genocide. And uh, it was a case that lasted two years. Now, during that two-year period, because it was a national court, we also worked on other cases. It, It was a very exciting time because young people were returning after the war and wanting to work on the court. The ethnicity was not an issue. We had all three ethnicities represented in every department of the court. The Muslim Bosniaks, the the Orthodox, Catholic Croats, yeah. Yeah, and um, we had great hope, and we did great work. Since then, I think things have become very um, dire. What was it like at that time of transitional justice in, in the country? As you said, there was hope. It did feel that there was possibility. Oh, absolutely. More than possibility. People were really committed to making it work. Uh, And the court did work until it became a political football, the entities and the politicians. And sadly, in my estimation, the um, international community pulled out of the support for the court that the court continued to need long before it stopped needing it. And if anyone wants to familiarize themselves with the situation, there's uh, every year the high commissioner, there's still a high commissioner, uh, does a report to the secretary general of the UN. And the last report, uh, which was the 60th report, is, is very disturbing. And I would recommend it to anyone who is interested in where Bosnia now stands. Because we're talking about a country that has three presidents, 13 prime ministers, no common curriculum in its schools, three official languages. Well, the languages aren't the issue because they really are one language. Well, they really are one language, exactly. Having segregated schools. I've gone back many times to visit because I still have friends there. But one of the main reasons that the young legal assistants that we had so much hope for were leaving the country and continue to leave the country so they don't want their children raised in that way. Mm. It's very, very sad. Mm. And there's just been political stalemate and there hasn't been a constitution. The Dayton Accords set up the segregated areas and the two entities, but it was never meant to be the constitution. It was always meant to be a stopgap, an end to the war until a constitution could be. And whatever whatever opportunity there might have been for doing that seems to have gone. And because Republika Srpska, one of the two entities, keeps threatening to secede, um, and because other international entities seem to want to support the deunification of the country as opposed to its unification. So it's very sad. Can we move, Judge Fisher, after your time in Bosnia, not long after you finished up there, you went to work in Freetown in Sierra Leone, where you served as an appeal judge on the special court for Sierra Leone from 2009 through 2013. Yes. How did that appointment come about? And can you tell me about the court, why it was established, maybe remind our listeners, and how you felt about being there in Sierra Leone and the work that you were doing there? I was called on Christmas Eve in 2009 and asked if I would be interested in it. And I said, 
can I give you my decision later? Um, and they said, how about tomorrow? And I said, it's Christmas tomorrow. <laughs> it was an interesting Christmas breakfast. But uh, I was appointed by the Secretary General of the United Nations. The court itself is the result of a treaty between the United Nations and the country of Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone went to the United Nations after the peace treaty that was supposed to stop the civil war in Sierra Leone uh, fell apart in 1996 and asked the United Nations if they could have a war crimes tribunal. Uh, and the decision was made that it would be the first hybrid tribunal, that it would be both the national judges and the national party to the treaty, along with the United Nations appointed judges and the United Nations party to the treaty, and that it would be established in the country so that people could see justice being done in the place where the crimes had been committed, which was similar to the situation in Sarajevo as well. The difference being, and why I think the SESL may be considered to be more successful, is that in Sierra Leone, there was an outreach program that was extremely effective. That was due in large measure to the woman who is still our registrar at the RSCSL, Binta Mansare, who was from Sierra Leone, and who organized her group of employees to take the tape recordings of the proceedings and edit those into a usable tape, send them out on motorbikes with generators and video equipment, and show the tapes of the trial all around the countryside, going to little fishing villages, going into the mountains, going into the rainforests, getting the tribal elders and chiefs to support the meetings. And as a consequence, people were kept informed that could not otherwise be informed of what was going on. And they were able to, again, like in Bosnia, you had three different groups that were part of the civil war. And they could see that the defendants were being treated respectfully. They could see that the witnesses were being safeguarded and that their security was important. Uh, they could see that this was a real court, not a kangaroo court, which is what the politicians that were still out there were saying. They could see that if one of the defendants was someone that they knew that, you know, they had two lawyers, they were conferring with their lawyers, that they could speak, that they were asked to speak by the court, if they, they were asked continually if they were comfortable. This didn't happen just once or twice. This was a continual roadshow. And Binta uh, convinced uh, defenders and prosecutors to go out too and talk to people about what was going on in the courtroom. As a consequence of this, by 2012, the EU paid for a survey to be done to ask two important questions of the people of Sierra Leone and Liberia. One was, had the court met its mandate? Well, first of all, did they know what the mandate of the court was? And the mandate of the court was to prosecute those bearing the greatest responsibility for the offenses. And those would be the military leaderships of the three groups that were in opposition. And an astounding number, over 90%, knew exactly what the mandate of the court was and could recite it back to the surveyor. 
The second question was, had it met its mandate? And this is in Liberia and Sierra Leone, the combined total of those who were questioned, uh, 79.16%, which is almost 80%, said that yes, they believe the court had met its mandate. And the third question was of the people of Sierra Leone, had the court's work contributed to peace and reconciliation in Sierra Leone? And 91% said that it had. And that is due, I think, primarily to Mm -hmm. the fact of outreach and education. And that was something that probably could not have been done as effectively in Bosnia and Herzegovina because of the various entities being still in existence as opposed to a, a country that was more or less unified, at least its central government was. But it was an astounding result. Justice needs to be seen to be done as well as being done. Now, when it came to the Charles Taylor case, because of security reasons, it was felt that Mr. Taylor's case had to be heard at The Hague. This was the former president of Liberia, and he was convicted by the special court for war crimes. He was indicted at the time. He was a sitting head of state. So that created all kinds of interesting legal issues. Liberia was right next door to Sierra Leone. There was a concern that his followers, and he'd had many in Liberia, might do something in the way of military activity or paramilitary activity. And so for everyone's security, it made more sense to move that to The Hague. And I presided over the appeal in that case. Yes, that's right. You were elected president of the court in 2012. And um, when his appeal came up, when Charles Taylor appealed, you upheld the appeal and his 50-year sentence. My mandate as president was to preside over the appeal and to close the court. And uh, both of those were challenging, especially to get the appeal finished in time to close the court. Uh, I addressed the Security Council at the beginning of my term and shared with them our goal of completing our mandate by 2013. We were the first international tribunal to complete its mandate and go into residual status. We were the first to address the issue of child soldiers. We were the first to address the issue of of, uh, indicting a sitting head of state. We were the first hybrid court that was an international tribunal. We were the first to be in the country. We were the first to address the issue of forced marriage. Another reason why international criminal courts are so important to hear what people are saying happened, not to just try to pigeonhole what happened into what your preconceived ideas of atrocity crimes might be. To finish up then, what is the aim of international criminal law? What is its purpose? Well, clearly its purpose cannot be to prosecute every person who commits a crime of atrocity, even though that would be what the civilians who have been subjected to those crimes would like to see happen. It's just not, it's just too big a task. So it has to be more specifically targeted and it has to be able to deliver the message, first of all, that people who commit atrocity crimes cannot do so with impunity. And therefore, One of the significant aspects of international criminal law is that it holds people personally responsible so that there is no defense by following orders. You have an obligation not to follow an illegal order. And so it puts the responsibility on foot soldiers all the way up to the commanders 
to abstain from committing atrocity crimes, even within the larger atrocity, which is war generally. The second thing, let people be heard and let the record be made that these crimes occurred, that these victims are not being ignored, that we are not turning our backs on them. We want to hear their stories. We want to memorialize those stories. We want to hold accountable the person most responsible, even if it isn't the person who actually perpetrated the crime on that individual. And to let the community, the state, the victims, the survivors understand that this was an aspect of the rule of law. This was not fiat. This was taken seriously by the local community, by the national community, and by the international community. Good luck with it, Justice Fisher, and um, thank you for your time today. Uh, You're very welcome. And that was Justice Shireen Fisher talking to me about her life and work. A few thank yous before I go. Firstly to Irish Aid for funding this podcast and thanks too to the Bar of Ireland for their facilities in the recording of this episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a rating. Until next time, thanks for listening and keep well. Listener.